For the final segment of our program, we return to Drs. Rupard and Gertz as Dr. Rupard presents a patient with recently diagnosed disease. So 67-year-old Caucasian woman, she presented actually just a few months ago with a compression fracture in T11. And when she was evaluated for this in our emergency department, as in many emergency departments, she had a CT scan to evaluate some shortness of breath she was having. And that showed a mass underlying the compression fracture. And our radiologist very astutely recognized that there was something going on there and actually suspected a plasma cytoma at that point. So a biopsy was done and confirmed a plasma cytoma. This woman otherwise looked very good. She had no cytopenias. Her CBC looked entirely normal. She had a normal serum calcium, normal creatinine, no renal dysfunction. Her SPEP showed a 2.7 gram per deciliter spike IgA lambda in quality, and she underwent a bone marrow biopsy, which revealed a hypercellular marrow, and the cellularity was 70% plasma cells. Fish studies on that bone marrow showed a trisomy 17, trisomy 11, and a gain of 1Q21. Skeletal survey showed that she had, in addition to this plasma cytoma in her lower back, diffuse lytic lesions. So she was treated initially with a couple of weeks of radiation, two weeks to be exact, the plasma cytoma in her back, and then followed by medical therapy. Her free light chain ratio was 0.0073 at baseline, and after two cycles of dexamethasone, lenalidolide, and bortezomib, along with zoledronic acid, that had normalized, as had her absolute light chains, and really was within normal limits now. We looked at an SPEP from late December of 2013, and there was no M-spike visible where she had had a 2,700 milligram M-spike previously. So she'd had a really nice response, and my questions for Dr. Gertz were, you know, where do we go from here? This was a patient who had an interesting social situation. Her husband had lymphoma, very refractory lymphoma, and had been transplanted at Hahnemann University in Philadelphia and went through a very, very difficult transplant in which recovery for him was more than a year. And because of that, she came into my office almost on day one saying, listen, I need treatment for my myeloma, but don't talk to me about doing a bone marrow transplant. I don't want to do that. So, you know, we were faced with this clinical conundrum, a person who's had a really nice response to treatment, who has some adverse cytogenetics, and really the standard of care, I think, at this point would be to send her for a transplant, but she was sort of politely declining that. So I thought it might be helpful to have Dr. Gertz there to talk a little bit about the transplant itself and what the benefit may be. I found three teaching points with this patient. The first, frankly, was if there were no spinal cord encroachment symptoms, did she actually require radiation for the T11 plasma cytoma? That certainly would have been the standard of care during the era of melphalan, but now in the novel agent era where median times to responses are two to three weeks, I oftentimes, if it's pain, but not any specific evidence of cord damage or nerve root injury, I'll actually kind of hold on the radiation and give the induction therapy an opportunity to respond. The second point has to do with the intensity of induction therapy. Clearly, you develop a clinical protocol. There has to be a standardized approach so that everybody does it the same way. But when you get to real life, here you have a patient that really had a wonderful response to treatment, but was having significant asthenia that left her in bed six days a week. She was having significant 
neurological symptoms, some peripheral neuropathy, some restless legs, but they sounded like neuromuscular irritability that would be attributable to bortezomib. And then, of course, there was the steroid issue. And so then the question comes up, you've had a good response, but it's only been two cycles. Do we start managing the side effects? You know, she doesn't want to change anything. She just wants the cancer to be controlled. But we have a responsibility to help ensure that her quality of life after she's completed therapy is good. And if we're starting to see evidence that in this case, this woman occasionally had to take sleeping pills to get to bed at night because the neuropathic symptoms would keep her awake. And then the neuropsychiatric and mood issues regarding the dexamethasone say, well, maybe until we figure out transplant or no transplant, maybe we're going to make some modification in the bortezomib, either dose, scheduling, route, whatever, and dosing on the dexamethasone. And then that brings us to the big question, and that is, is stem cell transplantation moot in the era of novel agents? And of course, our problem is lack of data. The three randomized trials that looked at transplant versus no transplant all showed a survival advantage of transplant, but all of those predated novel agents. So the game changed when novel agents were introduced. The problem is there are actually two active randomized studies now ongoing, one in Europe, one in the United States, that's trying to answer the question, does transplant make a difference? But for right now, we don't have that data. If you look at what the thought leaders in Spain, in Britain, in Italy, and in France are doing with their trials, if you're under 65, transplant's part of the protocol, period. You go to transplant. And then the final flip side is what data is there that stem cell transplant is inferior or no difference? And the answer, there is none. So I would argue while we're waiting for the results of these pivotal trials on the role of transplant, that transplant remains the standard of care for these patients. Now on the flip side, there have been two trials that looked at stem cell collection followed by immediate transplant versus delayed transplant. One is a very, very old MAG trial that showed no survival difference, but a better quality of life with early transplant because those patients spent less time on chemotherapy. And now the question is, if there's maintenance involved, is that really going to hold true? And then there was a second trial from our group that looked at collection and transplant without quality of life studies that also could not demonstrate a survival benefit of early versus late transplant. So I can't comment on the timing of the transplant, but I think the preponderance of the data suggests we should continue to transplant and that the onus of proof falls on those individuals to demonstrate that the standard of care transplant no longer applies in the current era. So given the fact that she's not too interested, at least right now, in a transplant, what's the plan for the next few months? Well, we were able to talk to her today. She was there with her husband and her daughter. It was actually her daughter who kind of ratted her out, so to speak, on the asthenia. What happened was I had asked her how she was feeling, and her answer was, you know, she said she didn't feel great, but she felt okay, you know, and she thought that part of that was she felt she generally feels good the day after her steroids, which she took yesterday. But her daughter 
really gave a different story, this story that Dr. Gertz told that she was staying in bed much of the time because of this asthenia, which I did not know as a side effect of the bortezomib. That's a real, real interesting thing to me because as I think about it, I think I have more patients that applies to. But after discussing this with the group and discussing sort of the difference in a transplant for myeloma versus a transplant for a refractory lymphoma, she seemed more interested in following up. She also is being seen at Thomas Jefferson University and will be undergoing a bone marrow biopsy next week. She was scheduled for that biopsy, but was unsure exactly what it was for, and we explained to her that was a pre-transplant biopsy. I would have to say, honestly, although I feel strongly about transplant, in no way do I think it's appropriate to arm twist, bully, intimidate, because you know, the one person that you kind of urge and push, that's the one patient who's going to have a complicated course, and you're going to be very, very sorry. So they still have to make the decision, but you can provide them at least with the data. So one point I'm curious about, you mentioned that she's had some kind of neuropathic problem. How have you been administering the bortezomib in terms of routed administration and the frequency? And I'm kind of curious from Mari, how do you approach this initial dosing of bortezomib in terms of whether it's IV or sub-Q or weekly, bi-weekly? So how did you do it in this case? Yeah, she got all sub-Q, and our institution has seven oncologists, and six out of the seven use sub-Q entirely. And I'm hoping that after today will be seven out of seven. Hopefully, Dr. Gertz will have had some influence on that. So she got sub-Q, and generally that's how we do it at my institution now. I think almost all of the patients who got bortezomib that we'll discuss today got it sub-Q. How about your approach, Mari? I've heard people hesitate at least starting sub-Q, you know, for example, on a patient with renal failure or a patient who's super sick. How do you approach it? Well, I think that's exactly the case. So the real question is, how rapidly do we need to achieve a response if we're electing bortezomib-based therapy? So if the reason you're treating the patient is because they came in with a hemoglobin of 8 it's kind of irrelevant to me whether I achieve my PR at two weeks, four weeks, seven weeks. If the patient has lytic disease without intractable pain, the same thing applies. But if a patient comes in in acute renal failure, that's a very different situation. Time is of the essence, and I don't think one would want to look back and say, gee, I wonder if I should have given the bortezomib twice a week. I don't think you can make that mistake. You give it twice a week in a situation where dose intensity and time to response is critical. But barring those patients who are true critical illness, I tend to adhere to a once-weekly bortezomib schedule, knowing that in the long run, based on studies, in the long run, the total amount of bortezomib administered will be exactly the same because fewer patients will need to stop or reduce treatment due to neurotoxicity. You know, I've found it's been surprising to me that oftentimes the least tolerated of the medicines that we give up front is actually the dexamethasone. And that was the case with this patient. She had been very poorly tolerant of the dexamethasone. She'd had some lower extremity edema. She had some hyperglycemia and really had had difficulty sleeping, just a lot of agitation, that sort of thing. And I'm curious, Dr. Gertz, what you do in those patients who are poorly tolerant of dexamethasone, and really where you start, what your dosing is that you'd start for the average yeah. patient. In the elderly patient, I'll start the dexamethasone at 20 milligrams. For all other, I'll start at 40 milligrams, 
but with an absolute certainty in my mind that my threshold for tapering rapidly is very low. And we saw patients taking 12 milligrams of dexamethasone a week. I've got plenty of those, 12 milligrams, eight, and eventually none. And it's the things that you can't measure. It's the mood swings. It's the withdrawal. It's the terrible insomnia. The patient says, I'm doing okay. The spouse says, I'll kill them if you don't make a reduction <laughs> in the dexamethasone because the neuropsychiatric toxicity is so profound. And so although by habit, we've used 40 milligrams, and I still use 40 milligrams. It comes down very quickly. Most patients aren't at 40 milligrams by cycle four. I have a question for you about that, kind of the flip side of that. Does this compromise efficacy when we lower the dose? Because I do the same thing, and there's times when clinically you have no choice. Right. But I have patients ask me, well, okay, we'll lower this dose, but is this going to change you know, my outcome here? Is this going to make my cancer come back? So two comments. One, of course, it's unknown because no one's ever looked at 40 versus 20. But when you look at the pivotal trial that looked at dexamethasone once a week, versus dexamethasone, four days on, four days off, four days on, four days off, the old way we used to give it, the survival was better in the weekly, but the response rate was higher with the more intensive dexamethasone. They had deeper hematologic responses. The problem was patients were dying of cardiovascular events, sepsis related to the toxicity associated with it, so that it is more toxic, but if you look only at hematologic response rates, they were a bit higher.